The week before this podcast was recorded, I released an essay, a research paper in essence, about collectors of crypto art, which I've been doing throughout the last few months. The reaction to these pieces has been either momentous, triumphant publicity or complete crickets. But this third one, titled The Collectors Who Will Kill Crypto Art, received an altogether different kind of feedback. There were the requisite crickets, some, some very kind words from some very kind folks, but for the first time, I also seem to have really inflamed someone. This someone was Hidden Forces, a crypto artist whose many accolades I'll list later. We went back and forth on Twitter a bit, Hidden Forces being unhappy at what he'll call the thrust of my argument, and his belief that the piece was anti-artist. While I won't always bring my critics onto this podcast, I thought that having Hidden Forces here would be a really interesting foil for a discussion about everything I touched on in that essay. Collectorship, the responsibility of collectors, the future of crypto art, the fate of artists. No, not knowing Hidden Forces before our podcast, I was surprised, relieved, and delighted to find that he's a knowledgeable, incredibly well-spoken, and very generous thinker. Our conversation was really mind-expanding, and by the end of it, I was conceptualizing crypto art in an entirely new way. So please enjoy the conversation between Hidden Forces and I on this week's Smoke Alive podcast. And once again, disagreeing with me on Twitter will not automatically get you on the podcast, but I guess it can't hurt. Good evening, everybody. It is 5.06 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. My name is Max Cohen. Welcome to the uh, Mocha Live podcast. Uh, joining me today is our special guest, Hidden Forces. How are we doing, Hidden Forces? Uh, I'm doing great. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I hear you perfectly. Thanks for coming on. Sure, yeah. Good. Glad to be here. Yeah, we appreciate you coming on. Hidden Forces is a longtime uh, creative with titles as varied as like art director, set designer, props and interior stylist, sculptor. Um, you've worked with like, a staggering number of, of brands, Mary Claire, Food and Wine, Esquire, a bunch more. And you're also a high order crypto artist. And I was looking through your super rare earlier and I, I found myself really fascinated by your work. You know, these ever changing, evolving kind of color studies um, all contained within, you know, these like Petri dish like surroundings. But so big fan of your work. Um, but you're on the show today, not necessarily to talk about your work, but actually to talk kind of about mine. Um, last week, I released an article. Yeah, I know it's strange for me as well. Uh, last week, I released an article about some of the dangers of what I call like poor collectorship. And it was called The Collectors Will Kill Crypto Art. And generally, the gist was in talking about the lack of middlemen in crypto art, how some of those middlemen in the traditional art world, um, like art dealers, um, specifically some kind of famous examples like Joseph Duveen and Larry Gagoshin have had an outsized effect on how the traditional art world has kind of maneuvered throughout the last hundred years. And so throughout this essay, I kind of equated collectors in crypto art as taking on the role of that middleman and the outsized power that collectors in crypto art now possess. And while I'm accustomed to a wide variety of reactions to my work, uh, I'm, I've not to this point made anybody, uh, as vehemently angry as I seem to have made hidden forces. And I think you raised some really important issues about this essay um, and some faults of my own. And I wanted to have you on so we could kind of talk about your viewpoint, not only in the essay, but on crypto art in general. So I'm going to kind of give you the floor to talk about what exactly kind of 
upset you or kind of rubbed you the wrong way about this essay? Sure, sure. Well, uh, let me first say that I appreciate uh, that read on. That was uh, very generous. And um, it's nice to hear that you're a fan of the work because that's really, for most artists, you know, what it's about. My client list. I mean, it's good to tell people that I've done a lot of collaborative work, um, but it's, I feel like when artists get to a certain level in their career, those kinds of accolades fall away a little bit, you know, that you did a Nike ad back in the day kind of thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. It becomes less it's sort of something everybody has in their belt, really kind of at this point, I feel like in a lot of ways with the older artists. But anyway, I'm digressing because um, we're here to talk about this uh, treatise that you wrote about the collectors in the space at the moment and the sort of power that they have. And I, won't say that I disagreed in totality with everything that you wrote. I did think that there were some good points raised. Um, my main anger, though, there were some things that I felt like were glossed over, and it has to do with the way... Well, you chose some pretty extreme examples, obviously, of art dealers, the most successful art dealers in modern history. And I'm talking about, I guess, specifically Duveen, and then his kind of spiritual... Uh, follower, which is Gagosian, with Leo Caselli kind of you know, sandwich in there, kind of bridging it, yeah, yeah, creating a bridge in there for sure. Um, but I, you, you extol their virtues, and you talk about, you describe them as wizards, you know, call them uh, magi, and so what you seem to be referring to was that they had this awareness, right? You mentioned that at a certain point, this idea that they had a greater awareness. Yeah. So if I can stop you real quick to kind of just expound on that topic. So, yeah. So these three men um, throughout the 19th century, I'm sorry, the 20th century, what they had access to was information literally on the whereabouts of artwork. I mean, I think we kind of take it for granted that so much of this great artwork is in museums or kind of publicly available to be seen. But the truth is that when we're talking about the highest, highest levels of the traditional art world, where these artworks are being bought and sold for many tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. They're oftentimes in warehouses, in temperature controlled warehouses where they're appreciating, or uh, if they're you know lucky and not in a museum, they're displayed over someone's living room couch or over someone's bed in like a penthouse apartment. And what these men kind of did on top of being great salesmen is kind of create a Rolodex of where these artworks were. And they would entice these client lists to come into their worlds by promising them access to art that nobody else in the world had access to because there is no central underlying repository for this information. It's kind of just who you know, what you know, and that power has accumulated in very specific hands. Um, These are, of course, not the only art dealers who matter in the 20th century, but I think they're the three that have kind of the outsized importance and then obviously in crypto, we don't have that because all information is publicly available. So I just wanted to provide that background. Hidden Forces, please continue. No, that was great. Um, and and they have had an outsized influence, of course, on the tastes of modern museum collections, the, the collections of modern wealthy people. But I'm not sure. I mean, you're talking about the awareness of, I mean, okay, first of all, you're dealing with physical objects, right? So they can't have a digital uh, record that sort of automatically updates of where things exist in you know Rockefeller's time, for instance. Um, but but I think you're kind of glossing over those personal relationships, and I think that 
and you're glossing over the sort of social cachet that they are tapping into as art dealers. And those are skills as old as royal courts. You know, those are skill sets where you have people who, I mean, I think traditional human power structures are such that you eventually, in every kind of modern society, you eventually end up in a situation where there is a group of people that have more resources than they have any reasonable right to have with under their auspices. And so they don't know what to do with their money, essentially. And then you have to have people come in and give them delights and give them things to, you know, one at its charity. It's like, so please give to the poor and the other it's culture. So it's like, please support the arts, you know, whether you're, uh, buying paintings or underwriting a small film or whatever it is. Um, so I think that that's nothing new. I don't think that, I mean, Devine was very successful because he was living in a gilded age. I mean, if you look at the power of the people that he was stirring amongst, first of all, Duveen is, first of all, Duveen is British, right? But he's not really British because he's the son of a, uh, First of all, he's like half Jewish, right? Which at that point, society in British area is like a, le- uh, a liability, right? Per- perhaps. And what, what's interesting about Duveen is that he was kind of the first to realize that there were these titans of industry that were evolving in America, right? And all yes. of these men kind of specifically revolve around like the America-centric art world, which admittedly, I'm going to be biased towards just based on my life, my research, where I live. Um, but yeah, Duveen's kind of coup de gras was realizing that the great masterworks of art, and he, you know, he was working with Raphael and Titian, right? These like, you know, the the people you go to Italy and France to see their right. works, you know, the, the kind of universally classically recognized like apex of artistry. Yes. And he brought those to these men of immense wealth and power in the US whose wealth had not really taken a shape yet. And it really hadn't affixed itself to artistic objects. But of course, culturally, whenever, yeah, exactly. Culturally, yes, whenever you have that much money, you want some kind of social cachet, like you said. And what the American industrialists wanted was to be recognized as wealthy, powerful, and having that cachet on a global scale. So Duveen kind of moved in there with his knowledge of European tastes and inserted them into, you know, the American kind of system. Right. But Duveen is a person. I, I don't think you can overlook Duveen as a personality. I mean, Duveen is a uh, guy yeah. with a, who has, he's, um, you know, people who convert to a religion are often more uh, fanatical about that religion. Well, I, I think the same can be said for someone who is trying to uh, jump class especially in that era, especially in the British Empire. And this is a guy who has a lot of, um, obviously a lot of ambition. And he sees this way to be a bridge to the Americans. And so he steps in, takes all this raw, it's not what you call it. It was like the raw ore of power, right? Which is, I guess, a, a... Fitting metaphor being that it was like iron and steel that made so many. Right. But it's but it's also these very underdeveloped egos. Right. Because the American ego at that time, the American mind at that time was much less sophisticated. I mean, I think you could even say this in a general way. Even today, it holds true that the American mind is not as sophisticated as European mind on a general level regarding culture, regarding uh, what is 
uh, even asking the questions of what was interesting. And so these Americans weren't looking for someone to teach them how to appreciate more work. They were looking for a shortcut, right? They were looking for someone who could just put together the, the paintings that they needed in order to be, have the right, you know, it was like have the right house, have the right uh, horse and buggy or car or whatever at that point. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, and then you see kind of once all of these works proliferate through the U.S., right, and you have like the National Gallery of Art that is um, in large part the product of Duveen's association with um, Carnegie, um, right. the steel man. Um, once you see that this proliferation of European art kind of moves throughout the U.S., then, I mean, what's the new social class, right? What's the, what's, or rather, what's the new social clout-making item right and that's where like Castelli kind of steps in and he's a gallerist as well as a art dealer and so he starts bringing people into his orbit like um jasper johns um and like the abstract expressionist and he says no 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 you, you know anybody can have these old works by these old masters what you really want are you know these new kind of abstract you know socially like these important in within this moment pieces so he changes the paradigm so it's not just bringing the classics to these people it's establishing what's canon as like a new classic um yes and it's establishing a, and who a are the new yeah, and who are the new masters exactly and like right but it's also the new american ego he's establishing the new american ego because it's like you're talking about the shift from europe-centric viewpoints suddenly you've got new york becoming the art center you've got artists flocking to new york to be part of a scene You've got uh, the you know the galleries, the auction houses are 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 focused on these artists and the Americans. It's time for them to sort of break away, not only embrace something modern but something American. You know, some, like listening to jazz over listening to chamber music, that kind of thing. Sure, absolutely. And then Castelli goes right into Gagosian. Um, there's kind of like a mentor-protege situation right. um, with a lot of the same artists kind of in their quote-unquote stable, a lot of the same client lists. But again, you know, it's it becomes harder over time to establish new masters. That takes time. But what doesn't take time is peddling the works of the old masters. And, you know, and those, whether that's the historically significant ones from, you know, the Renaissance or whether that's, you know, these 20th century quote-unquote masters that Castelli had kind of set up and started um, proffering again those are the works that end up in you know lounges and in salons and in the bedrooms of really wealthy folks and so again it's not just establishing the who's who of who you need to collect it's establishing the fact that oh only i know how you can get your hands on a, a side twombly piece because i know where they all are so if you can't do that yourself and this gallerist over here can't do that i can do it for you so it's right. creating the market and then shepherding you through it and once again, it's built out of personal relationships. I mean, it's the same thing when you, when you, with Gagosh, with Larry, it's like, what do they say about the parties? It's like, this guy is always working. The parties have a reason for existing, right? It's like he is connecting socially because that is how traditionally, this is the break, I think, and what I, and we'll get to this a little later with more of what I'm talking about, how I disagree with this general thrust here. But this idea that, you know, the wealthy have existed in this way where they have allowed, I mean, if you're really wealthy, what you're really buying is like solidity and stability and, but this, this stasis, it kind of locks you in. You're not, 
you're conservative, you're not taking risks, you're not doing interesting things. And so you have to have this group of people that are like the commoners, if you will, who live actual lives, who have drama and, you know, tragedy and all this stuff happening in comedy. And they can come along and give you something to, yeah, their expressions of their real lives can give you something to give money to. And that's what we call culture, um, essentially. Uh, But I think that that has changed with crypto art. And we're asking now for a kind of more, I think the model is, is more towards the American pop music model, right? Of, of people want to be able to hit these numbers and it's all about social media numbers, but it's a more democratic collector base. Well, yes, in, in theory, but my, my, and my point, and I think this is maybe where we'll start to disagree, sure. is, you know, in crypto art, right, where salesmanship happens behind, you know, these pseudonymous identities, right? And it's not necessarily these same, like, salesmanship, charismatic skills with relationships that, that were necessary in the past. That's one point, right? And two, all of the information about where these artworks are, who used to hold them, how much they sold for all of that's public right so the yes power that comes from knowledge is kind of evaporated and, and th- again the thrust of my essay that i think you disagreed with is that right a, a lot of that power to create taste and also create the market and shepherd people through it happens in this more intimation like on the intimation level right by the um collections of people who through their collections establish that power right so like you know, these classic examples of these, you know, very powerful collectors, right? Whether it's 6529 or Vincent Van Doe or um, Basileus or Cosmo Medici, just by purchasing an artwork by an artist, they, that artist is given the clout, given, yeah, exactly. They're elevated to the level that it would have required these middlemen figures before, but because there are no middlemen, because the collector is both the buyer and the art dealer and the museum and the gallerist kind of all rolled into one. My contention is that my general contention is that there's a ton of responsibility on collectors and I'm not sure we've seen collectors embrace that responsibility, but it will only become more important when, you know, the next bull market hits. Well, what is their responsibility? You just left that open. Their responsibility to, I mean, dot, dot, dot. What is their responsibility? Is your, I mean, what are you defining that? So it's not a specific responsibility, but I think it's a responsibility to collect with integrity and also to promote their integrity driven collections more than maybe they're doing. So here's my fear. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, I would say, I'm glad that you said more than they may be doing, because I feel like that's a bit, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to ask, right? Okay. We can all like have these uh, uh, idealistic kind of goals. But I think it's a bit naive to expect. I mean, a world with where we know wash trading is happening, where essentially, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into accusations, but you know, there's a certain artist who does 3D design who nobody ever heard of until he showed up on a certain new platform owned by some certain billionaires and had a you know, $3 million weekend and all of a sudden is sort of the staple 
under the the banner of crypto art but that felt like to me like the manipulation of what you would describe as the duty like that's the opposite of it i'm not saying everyone's Abs- no it. absolutely I, so i think that certainly happened yeah you and i are agreeing at this point right because what i see as a potential future for crypto art and this is also taking into consideration that if you're collecting crypto art at a high level you obviously care about it you more than likely, right? Because the overwhelming majority of collectors aren't these gargantuan figures. They're people who really care about collecting art. They care about the artist. They care about the movement of the space forward. But my fear mm. is that, you know, again, gripe with that as you will. That can come down. I mean, it's granting them a lot of altruism in a world where I think that they're real people. In a world where, for instance, just speaking from the artist, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I have collectors that I've, have blocked me. <laughs> you know, and sure. one of those specifically, it was because on Twitter, there was a, a female artist who was asking, a, merely asking some question innocuously and was shut down by that collector in a really rude way. And it, it wasn't even a gender related thing. But I, you know, I spoke up just because, hey, this is another artist. This is a human being. Can't treat people this way. And then he blocked her and then he blocked myself. And I just thought, is this person going to sell my piece now? Are they going to, but, but it's, they do an outsized power as an early collector in mm-hmm. that if they decide suddenly they don't like you, then they stop collecting. They stop furthering your career. So yeah, it's just the flip side of that. I just wanted to throw that out there. No, I, I think it's a really important point. And I think that part of the issue here is that there's a handful of people who are self-identifying as collectors and then the rest of people, maybe they're intimidated by the nomenclature itself of saying like, I'm a collector. I mean, it took me very many years of writing every day before I would tell people that I was a writer. Um, I would base so much of myself off, you know, being a restaurant server and it really made me uncomfortable. And I think in that same way, a lot of people who own lots of crypto are, are, I don't know, it's difficult for them to self-identify as collectors, but it's vitally necessary that people start to do so and that collectors who are altruistic and that do collect either with intention or with an eye to the future or, you know, with some kind of thesis as their guiding line, some kind of like real desire to build the space. Ethical collecting. Yeah, exactly. That they're doing as much promotion of their work that they're, doing the marketing they're building these relationships because the flip side is that people like this collector who you just mentioned, right. Who's going to block people who disagree with them or these, you know, these VC backed collectors who are going to, you know, elevate somebody, you know, rip as much value from them as possible and then leave them that these, that like taste making capabilities will solidify with them because the other collectors simply aren't visible enough. And then, you know, as, Christie's and Sotheby's. Yeah, yeah, please. Let me ask you a quick question, though. Don't you feel like at a certain tax bracket, it behooves you as a collector to, I mean, especially in crypto art, it's like if you are the collector, you enjoy a certain cachet and that Mm -hmm. you can utilize that power. But you can do it in ways to make your collection more valuable. Well, I'll... I'll I'll respond to that really quickly, uh, if you don't mind. So one of the things I asked all the collectors for this essay was basically like, why do you collect crypto art? And while on its face that makes, that seems trivial, you know, you said like social cachet. And if I'm, if I'm in that tax bracket, right. And I have capital in the millions to deploy for social cachet. It is stupid 
to do so in crypto art because what are you getting you're getting like twitter love and like invites to a party like twice a year there's a pretty good chance you have to remain anonymous like i see the world around me if i have you know a million dollars two million dollars of like cachet building money i can have a lot more fun and be a lot more visible in other spheres so i i i, uh, I disagree I, I, I totally disagree with that look sure um I, and i will say this like crypto especially the art end of it is still wide open like you could i mean as speaking as like if you look at artists like it's wide open any artist can come in create a buzz do something interesting flip the script and get a bunch of attention right and attention is the real commodity in a bear market um Mm -hmm. and so that's not hard to engineer and engineering is what it takes that it's a resource uh problem where artists are funding themselves and it's difficult to do collectors might have more uh funding from their own collection or they might know people at, at the VC level, you know, they might be getting walking in the circle. So they might have access to funding the way artists don't, but I think everybody's trying to be out there branding. And I mean, you're right. There are some people, I think if you, if you're Rockefeller level, right. You're invisible, but mm-hmm. I don't think there are a lot of people. I don't think there are a lot of people investing in crypto art who are necessarily invisible they might be not doxxed sure but but i'm wondering i i just feel like the the medium itself like you talked about earning money money other ways but it's like collecting is the one or one of the few places where calling yourself a collector and throwing a little money around will build you value you know we'll build real world value for your collection as the more yeah. famous that you get and this is something that ohms Crazy. the collector ohm said to me he's like um uh, i'm gonna paraphrase slightly actually yeah. i can find it he said the notable collectors in the space are those who spend the most money full stop actually i think it's inverse the best collectors are the ones who spend the least because they have to be more resourceful they really take some time and put a lot of effort into identifying works but you're like that goes back to what you're saying right like if you do have a little money to throw around you do get elevated to this level of i don't know i idealized collectorship and, and my fears that i express in this essay do kind of take a a, a longer term look at this thing um, it was tennessee jed who told me that like nobody's looking at other people's collections right now and i think that's true but there's Pressing, still a like, yeah. Jed is a, a smart, smart collector. Jed is a sure. smart, smart dude. S- smart person, yeah. Yeah. Sure. But I, I keep thinking about the next bull market, right? Who knows when it comes, if it comes, but let's say it does, and you have the the powers that be solidifying as they tend to do in these moments, right? And we know from a lot of these influencers and these grifters that kind of popped up in 2021 that once you kind of attain that social clout and the community itself gives it to you for whatever reason, it's really hard to unseat that. Even if, you know, information about you comes to light, even if your activity is really nebulous and sinister, uh, even if you're like a known grifter, like it's really hard to unseat people from those positions of power. True. Especially as the, as the community grows and grows, it's like, it's, it takes a, a lot longer for you to hear about the bad actors because specifically in our space, being critical of things is almost verboten. And yeah, especially totally. Art, especially the artistic efforts of your peers, certainly. But also, you know, hack, heckling platforms, which is one of my personal favorite things to do in this <laughs> world. Uh, 
it gets me into yeah. a lot of trouble. Um, but I do it anyway because they need people sort of nipping at their heels. And I think, you know, the smart people in those organizations understand that it's done with love. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, and even yeah. when it's not all love, but it's it's very much like the the you know mother goose phenomenon, right? It's you who you see first, you kind of develop this attachment to. So, you know, again, we have these four or five universally known within crypto art collectors. Then we have a contingent of OGs, artist collectors, lesser known folks. Like I think even a name like Tennessee Jed is kind of under the radar. Um, a, a collector like Ohms is kind of under the radar. The fact that people like Sarah Zucker and, you know, Giselle Flores and Matt Kane have collections of their own that are really, you know, beautiful and really thoughtfully put together. Like that itself kind of goes under the radar because again, artists who are collectors are artists first and collectors second. A lot of these collectors are, I understandably not looking for the pressures and everyday, um, tasks that come with keeping up a a large online following i mean i think that we should separate out the three people that you just mentioned i mean tennessee jed is is i don't know that much about jed i mean i think jed might have a peace of mind hiding away in that vault somewhere but um (laughs) but uh sarah and matt kane and giselle dear friends of mine um they all started building their collections it's a little bit different right because they are not people who came along and said i'm going to collect yeah they are people that looked around at all their friends that were making all this awesome art and they were trading art they're giving away art a lot of it was given away a lot of it was traded for you know tiny amounts of money or nothing at all or just gas fees and that was sort of the environment so if you were Pressing enough at the time, I think if you got in early enough, then you did probably build somewhat of a collection. And then you also, at the same time, probably have a story about the funny artwork that you didn't buy. Like, oh, you were going to buy a punk for like $3,000, but you didn't have it on you. So you skipped it or yeah, you know, those kinds of things as well. That was like the story I tell all the time about... Um... I was in crypto art for like maybe a month when uh, mm. Gazers dropped in December 2021 and I was on an NJ transit train and I was like 0.7 ETH. That's a little bit too rich for my blood. I'll uh, uh, let this come down in the morning and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. In the morning. Oh my God. That's the funniest part of that story. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, wait and it wouldn't be gone like 10 minutes. <laughs> I didn't know anything. I don't know anything now, but I was like, I was influenced by uh, a lot of shit investing in solana pfp projects so i was like oh price always comes down after mint ah, okay, yeah. yeah exactly so i learned my lesson but yeah not on matt kane's piece <laughs> yes <laughs> i don't think the price ever comes down i'll, I'll never with, get another chance but i i learned yeah, my so lesson sarah and giselle yeah they're they're yeah i just wanted to make that delineation because i do think that artists were building collections even art gnome is kind of in this he's not exactly an artist but he was here with the artists every day every well he was an artist away. long before he was a collector i mean I, I interviewed him for this piece as well and he's was very adamant and uh and prolific in talking about just all the art that he created i mean he went to art school he was frequently trading with artists and i think he found this space in large part because he found an ability to trade art with others i mean we have a piece yeah, of his in the, uh, the genesis collection you have a work you have a piece of his work 
uh, I don't personally, but in the Genesis collection, we have one called a uh, uh, Garden of Oz. It's a AI mashup of a Hieronymus Bosch piece with Wizard of Oz graphics. It's wonderful. Um, I'm trying to remember super- it because I know all those 700 pieces. I I went over that thing like two. Yeah, I'll I'll shoot it to you after uh after we get off here because um, it's yeah. Worth- I really want to see. I mean, I love Artnum. I was not aware that uh, he was making artwork or even went to art school. I guess maybe I did know he went to art school. But yeah, huh? That's I want to see his stuff. I'm so excited. Art Gnome's a really interesting character, I think, for the topic oh, for of our sure. discussion because he does self-promote in a way that I think a lot of collectors he self-promotes without an an interest in making money off of his self-promotion that I think is really rare among these like top level collectors right that top level being like in terms of notoriety obviously he's his because own he, animal he's he's his his, own yeah exactly his own solar system sure. um yeah but I, and I think that that's a really good paradigm for what I think I want to see more of right which is these collectors who for whatever reason have come here and they recognize that the promotion of their own collections and the artists within them as much as possible is necessary, not just for their own bottom lines, potentially going up in the next couple of years, but for the existence of this entire space to grow as a rising tide instead of, of a very, because I, I think we all have the same fear, which is that the 40 or 50 artists who are kind of commanding these prices and this attention today will be solidified. And then there will be nothing for everybody else. There will be no middle class of artistry. There will be no access for people who don't have that clout or weren't kind of chosen when the choosing was happening. And I think, I think, the only we, I way think that already happened. I think that already, I was going to talk about this too. I, yeah, please. I was, I was writing this up early and I was writing notes for myself when I was thinking about this conversation earlier, but you know, you talk about the collectors destroying the art market. I think they already did. You know, I think that they both built it and then destroyed it. You know, it was built in a hurry, <laughs> right? It was like, sure. It was slowly shit. and then all at once. Well, I mean, there was all these people grinding. I mean, John Crane doesn't think it happened overnight, obviously. And, and you know, uh, Colborn obviously understands it didn't happen overnight. But I think that there were grinders and then all of a sudden this this the panty came through things went into hyper time and this wave of money came in and so yeah there was this spike there was this yukon gold rush moment um and a lot of infrastructure some of it janky got put together a lot of companies got started up that wanted to move forward and wanted to create something but didn't really have you know they just wanted to be here to be part of the energy Mm -hmm. um which isn't always a negative thing. You know, some people just, they say, I know if I show up, I'll figure out, you know, how to be useful and be connected or add my contribution to the community or whatever. But I think that it's never going to be like that again. Like I think that the, the bull market as we know it is like, well, it's totally unpredictable. uh, I mean, like I I, I will say this, I'll say this. I think that we're not going to have, a splash market, which is what I would describe that as, mm-hmm. um, and and where it's brand new. You know what I mean? It's never going to be brand new again. So the that, the fact that it was brand new meant that there was nothing to distrust. Nobody knew about the scams, the big scams yet. All the new people coming in didn't know, right? So I don't think that we're going to have that splash. What I do think is that we're going to have the people who are still here grinding 
are going to be the winners at the end of the finish line because we are building real infrastructure and we are building real markets. And the art markets are the kind of test market for can block, you know, what can blockchains do with commerce? And I think it's the answer is very interesting things. And we're learning that. And so I do think that there is energy. It's, it's going to stay. And I think that the rise isn't going to be like a jump to this other market. It's going to be money's going to start coming in. People are going to work. These things are going to happen. And slowly but surely, we're going to build back up. I, I'm not even thinking about the market necessarily. I'm now thinking like art history, right? How is art history going to look back at, at, at crypto art, right? Beyond the money, but like to legacy, like what do we have here? And, you know, you pick up any art book and it's going to talk about, you know, your art movement of choice and it's going to distill it into a couple of important figures and maybe a manifesto and some kind of shared ideals. And the thing about, and, and, and we obviously don't know how art history is going to look at crypto art. Now, it's my conjecture that it will look at crypto art. Like we have too much, there's too much happening here that bleeds out into the rest of the world. There's too much institutional interest in what's going on here. It's too interesting to not have some art historian 10 years in the future tell the story of this space because it's oh, fascinating. 10 years? What are you... <laughs> well, no, Bro, I well, we, just, are the, we are the culture. I mean, think 100 years. Like, I, we're not absolutely. I agree with you. We're not... But when is... We're way you know, more when, than less than... But when is an art yeah. history professor, right? When is there going to be an art history class on crypto art, right? I, it's already I, happening. It's already happening. It should then, be. I, it should be. I totally agree. I'm with you. But it's also that it's happening in some schools. Somewhere. But it's I also hard to quantify this stuff in 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 real time, right? At some point, like I'm thinking about these giant art books where it talks about all the art movements. Like then one edition eventually will have a chapter on crypto art, whenever that might be. Maybe it's next week. Maybe it's five years from now. But my 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 point is that I I think personally the most important thing about crypto art is in its eclecticism, in its complete blowout glut of art it, it has no um walls in the way of aesthetics it has no predilection towards moods or tones or mediums it is kind of just this uh, amoeba-like thing that is eating constantly all the time and absorbing and, and and producing more and more and more and i think that that glut is the most important part of crypto art and i think that that needs to be conserved because i think that that's where the real meaning of the movement comes from and i think that's where it's real um Evocation as the first real like internet proffered art movement or internet centric art movement. I think that that's where you can see it. And I fear that if we have these few collectors of status and those are the collectors who are going to be interviewed and interrogated and who will have their works in the crypto art museum, who will have like the rooms in the museum and you'll say, oh, it was the, you know, the works of these 25, these 30 artists, this is the canon and everything else is just happening outside of it. Now, I think you could reasonably make that assertion in like the impressionist time, because I'm not sure that, that there were that many physical people who were connected to that movement. But has an art movement ever had thousands upon thousands of contributors coming and going and working like notably and self-representationally? under the same umbrella. And that's what I'm afraid that won't be preserved. And the only way I see of preserving that is more collectors being loud about all the artists they're collecting, not just the ones that are going to make the money. Because I think that that's how you protect the space going forward. And that's, I think, how you protect, even if you're investment-minded, how you protect all your investments going forward instead of just doing what movie studios do, where they put out 
you know, 31 movies a year, 30 of them are not going to make any money. And then the one is going to make, you know, everything back for the studio, um, which I think is a dangerous paradigm when it comes to real capital A art. I mean, I don't think, I mean, look, I agree wholeheartedly that collectors should be more out there about their activities. They should be more transparent. They should promote more. They should certainly show the works that they collect in public forums way more often than they do. And, you know, that is a that whole other conversation about the lack of uh, physical space curation across the board and how when we do have it in our industry, it fucking sucks ass <laughs> almost 100% of the time with occasionally someone doing it a little whimsy or a little delight. But all that said, I do not think that we even really know... I don't think crypto art is an art movement. I think that crypto art is about is a cultural movement. You know, it has so it's it's so much having to do across cultures that it might be one of the very first cross disciplinary cultural movements. I mean, the Beatles were a cultural moment. You know, Elvis was a cultural moment. Shit. Public Enemy was a cultural moment, you know, but it wasn't about the tech, you know. The the Walkman with the cassette player made some shit possible, you know. And now blockchains are making things possible. But we're at this kind of flux where it's everything. It's all of the things that we're doing culturally and science-wise that are interesting on the globe have a line penetrating crypto art. I mean, I can find an artist involved in any kind of weird phenomenon you've never heard of, all doing crazy things, all doing interesting things, but also, you know, look like Nate Alex, you have people, or or Matt King, you have these people who are using the actual technology of the blockchain itself to impact the works themselves. And now it's revolution storage. We have the gen art is coming up now. We have ways to show it. We have ways to trade it and we can grow an appreciation for it. So your conjecture is that crypto art is way more than an art movement. It's more of a cultural moment. And that's huge. And that thinking about it as I have in terms of the ex- like the extension of the artistic continuum is doing a disservice to the whole thing because we it's, can't judge it on that basis and it won't be judged on that basis because it expands it's, far it's outside nice. of that. I mean, yes, but even not even that because the disservice you're doing is just to your own worries because there's no way that this is going to fade. Look, some of the artists may fade. I mean, you, you mentioned your, art, your article. Where is it? I want to pull it up. Oh, wait, here it is. You were talking about the worst things that can happen to artists, right? Yeah, the three worst things that can happen to artists. Uh, here we go. Right. Least terrifically, an artwork collected by someone. All right. So you get in a good collection. That's a good thing. And number was number one, right? And then it's like, oh, if, if you know, if Pranksy owns your artwork, you're hot shit. Or, you know, whoever it is. I mean, shout out to Pranksy. Pranksy's a very cool, cool cat. Uh, shout out, Pranksy. Thinking innovator, for sure. But... That's the kind of collectorship ideology we have now, right? As we've been discussing, you know, this idea that the name of the collector 
puts a real shine on the artist. And I think that that's nothing new on a certain level. And I think in many cases, well, not, and not I, but I want to just be clear with what I, what I was saying in that paragraph, which, and maybe it didn't come across, but it's not just that you're getting in the collection of somebody with a name, but somebody whose collection is meaningful because what will happen to an artwork in the right collection is it will mean more than it can on its own. Just naturally, it will be kind of refracted through the echo chamber of a collection. So maybe that is to some people, you know, a Pranksy-esque collection, but I think it could also be just a collection that's intelligently designed, you know, reflects a, a taste. So I just want to yes. clarify that it's not just about, you know, being collected by one of the, the big names. It's being right. collected by somebody who cares about the work, whether they have a name right. or not. Right. It could be the only piece in their collection and if they love it enough and they paid enough for it. <laughs> sure. Well, but I don't I'm know. Kidding. Like I... Like I collected one of uh, WG Meets's uh, flesh, uh, his nice. uh, gen generative project, which I'm really happy about. And I don't have a great collection, but I think that I I collect with some kind of an intention. You know, obviously I'm not thinking I don't resell anything. I buy like additions and things, but it, gotcha. like that that matters to me. I don't want to suggest that I have some kind of like great collection or some kind of like incredible intention in collection. But you can trust that if I buy a work because I'm, you know, small time, low, like no name. If I buy a work, it's because I really care about it. And I think that like- Those are great. Yeah, those are great pieces too. Those great are, pieces. Those are a really brilliant. slick. Meets is a cool cat for sure. Seems like a good dude. And then yeah. you know, the second thing of, in the order of horrificness is being forgotten altogether. Right. So, but then, no, here's the thing with that. It's like, bro, <laughs> come on. First of all, I already did it. Like I forgot- 98% of the art that's in, ever been made in crypto are already. And so it's gone. Like, forget yeah. it. It never existed. And uh, it's all going to be forgotten. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, that's not the worst thing that happens to an artist. Because it's like an actor. It's like a band. It's like, you know, when you're in a band and then you're first starting out and you're really good, but nobody's heard of you. And then you play that show and there's like two people there. Mm -hmm. And you just play the best show of your life because you don't give a fuck. Yeah, no one's totally. show, but the show still existed in time. You felt it as an artist. So being forgotten, art being forgotten entirely, I don't know. I feel like you know, 90% of the work being made right now is gonna be forgotten. And, and I granted, and I say, like, you know, it's only slightly more horrific. And and listen, you know, we don't know each other well, but like I'm an aspiring novelist. I very well okay. might spend the rest of my life being an aspiring novelist, sure. but I've learned through a decade of being an aspiring novelist and having nobody give a shit about my work that, okay, that's not going to eat me. That's not the worst fate. Would I rather be, you know, cared about deeply by people who like this stuff? Absolutely. But if I am just going, if it's just going to be something that nurtures my soul and maybe a couple people here and there will read my stuff, that is good enough because it is good enough. So my point is only that that's not a, a, such a terrible fate that maybe it is thought to be um, in a lot of the dialect of crypto art. I think, and I, I said this in the essay, the worst thing that could happen is that your essence is co-opted by a name and you become like a Basquiat. Basquiat had a tortured existence. He lived in poverty most of his life. And then when he wasn't living in poverty, he was kind of like a, he was trained yeah. to produce as much artwork yeah, as possible. He was doing heroin and living in a windowless apartment yes, um, and being kind of yeah. controlled and puppeted. And, yes. and, and now he's, there is no Bas Basquiat. There is no, he's just this name attached to this art style. Nobody really cares about his, what his deal was. Nobody really cares about uh, what his intentions were. I don't know about that. Actually, I don't, I, I, Basquiat's a controversial figure, but I, 
I would say Boscat is someone who hasn't really been forgotten in that way. Their, their story actually is still. But I see too many crowns on T-shirt. I see too many Basquiat T-shirts sold at Target to think that that the the Basquiat who is creating this pained artwork is being honored, right? But bro, but bro, look, 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 look. And, and maybe that's a bad example. Hundred years from but... now, the the coffee mugs will all be broken, man. Come on, you know what I mean? Like, will they, man? They the still sorry. The yes, roof. The, the starry night. No, they will not. The starry night coffee mugs will go the way of history, and so will the no Boscat's crown won't. Because the thing about Boscat's crown is it became its own iconographic thing that talks about a cultural difference between white America and African America. African Americans America rather. And the thing is, is that Basquiat's story is a story of kind of being exploited, but but his vision as an artist was beautiful and he celebrated some things that uh, black culture once celebrated. And so they celebrate Absolutely. him to celebrate those exact things. And I think that when you see him in Brooklyn, you know, when you see that above like Biggie Smalls or whatever on the graffiti on the side of thing. It's 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 beyond Basquiat as the artist. And I don't know enough about Basquiat to really have like an intelligent conversation about this. Okay. You're absolute you're absolutely right. But again, it's like there's gonna be people like you and I who appear on art focused podcasts who care right. about this stuff, but the ninety-nine and a half percent of people are content to just let it be iconography, to just let it be cool t-shirt design, to take the artist and his life and his vision and his intentions out of the thing. I don't believe that, man. I don't believe that. Just because I would believe that, I would disagree with that. Like I will cede the point that there is a lot of, there are a lot of like barbecue aprons out there that artists who made the work that is on them would be livid. You know, they'd be rolling over their graves, whatever they would be you know, lighting people on fire if they saw that shit. However, that is not, you know, that commodification, I don't think it affects the deeper appreciation that people who appreciate art already would have. Do you know what I mean? Fair I enough. mean, they hate yeah. to see it. They don't want to see it. They look away from it. They're not going to go to the, you know, to the store at the end of the museum visit and buy some mm-hmm. silly thing with their favorite Fair. painting on it. But yeah, I don't think people who are going to appreciate the the work are going to appreciate it nonetheless, despite its commodification. I think so. I think that they can look past. I mean, they hate it too, like everybody. But oh, I mean, I think they hate it more actually because the people who don't hate it are just the normies who are like, oh, look at that starry night. That's pretty. You know, I put that on a cake for my you know kid's (laughs) birthday. And you know what? On the cake, it's I think it's a wonderful gesture. You know, if they were really doing that. You know, but a coffee mug is kind of annoying. But I Fair. think that that's, I don't think that that commodiz- commoditization or whatever commodification is, uh, I don't it's think it's going to over, I, th- I think it's going to, f- it's going to fade. You know what I mean? It's not going to be the fad like 20, 30, 40 years from now. That That's kind of, we live in this kind of age of, of hyper commercialization. And I think that, yeah, we are seeing like the 60s and the 70s and the 80s cultural symbolism like uh repackaged and shoved down our throats so they've been doing it since they brought the 80s back in like the 2000s yeah but, i mean i think we also fundamentally just as human beings we have this chronological attribution error where we assume that anything that's important in our time will remain important going forward right um, 
which is right. inherently false. That was kind of my point on that aspect too. It was like, hey man, like the mugs will will break and and you won't see them anymore, and it'll just be some dumb shit. You know, it's like lunchboxes. You know, kids don't carry lunchboxes anymore. And so you don't see those cultural icons on them. Yeah. But when you did, it was like the coolest fucking thing in the world. <laughs> like, oh, I've got this Kiss lunchbox. I love this band. You know that kind of stuff. It it disappears, I think, over the over the course. I I hear that. Uh, I hear that disagreement, and and I I, I understand it. Um, we should be finishing up soon. But is there anything else right. you wanted to touch on before we kind of head out of here? It's been a very productive conversation. I'm trying to think. Is there anybody I didn't insult that I wanted to insult? <laughs> that was really what I was asking you. <laughs> oh my gosh! I hope I didn't insult Artnum actually about him being an artist. I'm, I'm an idiot. I no, I don't. I don't, I don't think you did. I think he uh, he he told me. I think prefacing the quote that I was referencing, he's like, "Not many people know this about me," and I don't think he's super uh, open. Uh, or forward yeah rather. but that but the headbands should have been a dead giveaway should have been a dead giveaway yeah <laughs> he came on our fundraiser live stream the other day wearing a, a full knit mask of his face but when he used to have the hair and the big beard and it looked like uh art gnome leather face it was the very strangest thing oh man that's scary that's a little good. bit scary he does seem like the guy who would get like he'd be like brian cranston where brian Cranston got like a living mask of himself as Heisenberg <laughs> and then wore it to like one of the comic cons or whatever. And everybody took pictures with him and they thought he was just a guy in an amazing mask. And then he went to his panel and he came in as the fake version of himself and then ripped the mask off. And it was really him underneath. Well, hopefully Art Nome is listening to this and he takes this advice for the next NFT NYC or something. <laughs> All right, so no, nobody else you want to insult? Nothing else you want to bring up? Nothing um, else that gave you agita? I mean, we didn't talk about Zero One and it's Mocha, but we don't, I mean, that's a whole huge other conversation for another day because. Uh, so I, I really do want to have a conversation about that, but I want to kind of let it still go. It's so new and the opinions are so polarizing. Um, it's not Mocha for what it's worth. I mean, it's Colborn, but, you know, we don't. We're not like oh, okay. You're so. not connected. Oh, all right, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to uh, lump you in with those jackets. No, no, not a, not at all. I, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm currently monitoring the very powerful and polarizing opinions on the site, and uh, and I'd like to. Yeah, it is interesting. It's, I it's, bet it's, you didn't. I bet you guys did not, or I bet Colborn and Luda did not expect this kind of little backlash thing that's happening. That Honestly, man, I don't know if, if you are going to invent any platform that changes a paradigm or challenges a paradigm, good or bad, you got to expect some kind of backlash. I mean, the fact that I wrote, write these little essays and don't expect backlash is a ridiculous naivete on my part. So, Right, now you got a little backlash. Well, this is quite friendly, obviously. Um, yeah, of course, which I appreciate. I think that Colborn understands... Look, I've hung out with Colborn. I know Colborn fairly well. I feel like I know Colborn very well. We haven't spent a ton of time together, but we have broken bread together and uh, all of that. Had some beers together. And I love him. Well, I mean, what's not to love? The guy's one of the most lovable people in the game. And so I'm going to give him a lot of leeway. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because I trust him to a large degree, much larger than almost anyone in the entire that's one of the, the really interesting things about the zero one discourse which makes it i think a really right place for future discussion is that 
some people like Colborn because of the relationships he has, because of how long he's been doing this in this space, he is going to be given that kind of benefit of the doubt on something that a lot of people have very fair criticisms of. I'm interested to see how it develops in the next coming months, how zero one responds to the criticisms, um, whether they do. Criticisms are real. The criticisms are real, but I do do think that just I want to dial that in on, on Colborn because it's not, it's not that I had beers with this guy that I like him so much. You know what I mean? It's not because we could hang out and eat some Jamaican food and talk about art. It's, it's, I mean, that's part of it, but the main <laughs> thrust of it, the real reason is because of his spirit. And I've seen him stand up before crowds of people and discuss issues, discuss issues near and dear to his heart that have to do with art, creativity, provenance, the, the rights of artists, um, you know, the development of platforms, all these subjects. And he is someone that speaks with passion and deep intelligence. And so... Again, it's not just the personal relationships. It's because this is the way this person moves in the world, and I respect that. And that's why I was drawn to him on a personal, you know, wanting to get to know. You know, maybe we could finish on this point, but like, sure. I think so much, so much of crypto art that inspires me and which connects me to it is that everyone kind of working here is doing so from a place of passion, and uh, I even like an essay like mine, right? Maybe it's not the most well thought out. Maybe it's not the most um, intelligently designed, but I think it's clear to you. And that's why I think you came on the podcast and you're willing to talk with me. Like everything we're all doing is all passionate. Your response for passionate. The essay is passionate. All the art we're making is all this like passion projects. Obviously you need to build up your own cultural cachet so that people trust you, but there is so much like real passion in what people are doing and belief in what they're doing. And it is sustaining in a, Really powerful way. Sure, we're all do- yeah. I mean, I we just fluffed Colborn for ten minutes, but <laughs> he, he, but I would say yes. He's, he's not here. One, we don't need to fluff him anymore. He's, but again, you know, it's like he's one of many. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah. like it's not just him. You know, he is someone that I would single out because um, uh, you know I think he's quite awesome. But you know, there the thing about crypto art in general that I think has drawn me in so deeply is because. He's not such an anomaly. There are so many people, you know, all those people that you named, people that, uh, you know, Pindar, Ohms, Artnum, Sarah, all these people that you named, um, Tennessee Jed, Artie, uh, Cody, all these people that you named in the essay itself, they're all very singular. They're all very unique. They're all very interesting. And that is something that artists crave and artists are drawn to. And so to look around, and see all these artists who are really just interesting, unique people striving in the sort of same areas of interest. That is the important thing for me to remember moving forward as far as will we be remembered? Will we be, you know, in the canon, blah, blah, blah. Someone will stand on our shoulders eventually, but the work that we do is for ourselves and the artists coming after us. And that's all we can do. So we just got to keep, grinding and luckily we're surrounded by this incredible group of of amazing humans that really seem to be able to create some really cool stuff that the rest of the world can get excited about i think that that's a really wonderful sentiment and a great place to end so why don't we do that Um, 
Hidden Forces, I so appreciate you coming on and having this conversation with me and being willing, if not slightly too enthusiastic, to uh, break down the points that I made in my essay. Um, please don't uh, hesitate to do so again. Thank you for everyone who's watching this. We'll be back next week with another wonderful, God willing, wonderful episode of the Mocha Live podcast. It'll definitely be another episode of the Mocha Live podcast, supportives aside. Um, yes. Thank you once again, Hidden Forces, and uh, everyone so have a lovely day. All right, take care, all. Bye. This podcast was produced and edited by myself, Max Cohen. A big thanks to Hidden Forces for being our guest this week. Uh, big thanks to Julian Brangold for composing our entrance music and to Dayfox for composing our cold open theme. Please give us a subscribe or follow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you're hearing this podcast. And if you want different kinds of content from Mocha, please subscribe to us on Substack at museumofcrypto.substack.com.